Hey guys, thanks for joining me in the Holy Shed, the littlest parish in Christendom. But, you know, we may be tiny. However, this week we're thinking about cosmic stuff. Eschatology. I didn't say escapology, by the way. Eschatology. The study of the last things. Hmm. More of that in a moment. It's been a lovely week out there in the great outdoors, I think. For many of us this week, me and my missus, we had a a couple of lovely little trips out to enjoy the sunshine and photograph the odd bird or two. But you know what? This here, this is something that makes me so happy. A field of buttercups. We saw this one this week and saw so many of them. And it's like, once the sun's out on them, The whole field begins to just shine back. It's as if the sun is shining back at the sun. And there they are, standing tall in the sunshine. They give off, well, they give off such joy and this great glow of goldenness. Um, I find, actually, that the best way to look at them is like this, to sit yourself down, lie down in the middle of them and... um, Ah, you get a great view of them then. And you never know, you know, some of that beautiful radiance might just rub off. That's what I was hoping anyway. And the beauty of these little flowers is no one planted them. Not really. No one paid for them, you know. No one has to pay to look at them, which amazes me because I think I'd probably pay, you know. I think they should be in a gallery somewhere. Uh, Well, not really, because they're wild, aren't they? And that's the whole point. Wild is good. And, um, yeah, actually, I think I'd like to light a candle this week for buttercups, (laughs) not just the physical ones, but for what I call buttercup people. We all know them. Those people who just radiate joy and gladness and goodness. You know, someone said there are people who are radiators and someone, other people who are drains. I don't like to think of anyone being a drain, really, but I I know what she was saying, you know, that there are some people who just radiate gladness and goodness and joy. And we all have them in our life. I hope we do anyway. Um, So join me, if you will, in lighting a flame of gratitude for actual buttercups and all the other flowers that you like to look at this time of year, but also for buttercup people. And I know it's not buttercup time of year for you guys down under, but I think the buttercup people still shine, don't they? Even when it's the depths of autumn and going on into winter. So uh, let's take a moment of gratitude for buttercups and for buttercup people. here's a little prayer god of buttercups and all wild and wonderful things inspire us to stand tall never apologizing for who we are but glowing in the beauty of modest assurance that all we need to do is be amen 
just have to be. Okay, well, <coughs> you have to excuse me. I still have this little kind of COVID hangover cough. I like to think that every time I cough, I'm kind of coughing out of me. So I uh, don't know if that's scientific, but I'm giving it a go. So anyway, look, let's face it. The book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible, is a bit of a mind frick for loads of us, if you know what I mean, trying to keep it clean. It is, it's a mind frick for loads of us. Not necessarily because of what we've personally read in it. I mean, to be honest, I don't meet an awful lot of people who have actually read the book, and I don't blame them. Uh, but it's more because of the way in which it's been presented and interpreted to us dished out to us in grim sermons and teachings and all that kind of thing also more importantly because of the whole eschatological framework in which revelation is presented eschatological or eschatology by the way is just is the study of the end times the study of the last things um, so uh, it's it's a it's a it's a big part of many people's religious life you know eschatology even if they don't actually use the word as a text um revelation is not only bizarre and apocalyptic and probably psychedelic to be honest in places i have read it and wondered whether john had found something growing there on the isle of patmos that sort of uh, helped him along but um also i think beyond these things it contains horrendously violent, bloodthirsty, and also misogynist imagery, all part of God's greater purpose, as it is presented in the book of Revelation. By the way, it's only one, you know, of many books of Revelation that circulated in the early centuries of the church. This is the one that uh, found its way to the top, as it were, and became part of the canon of the Bible. But, um, there, there were quite a lot of them around. In fact, it's a kind of genre, really, of its own. It's a genre of literature which is deeply rooted in and influenced by certain texts in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. But we'll get to that. What I want to do today is, <clears throat> in this part one of our series, is not so much talk about Revelation, not today, but to clear away some of the rubble that surrounds it. Because in a nutshell, <clears throat> Revelation, I believe, addresses, the actual text addresses a specific historical situation faced by the church around the end of the first century. And however bizarre its imagery and language may seem to us, I'm pretty sure that the original readers knew exactly what John was getting at with it. So, um, <clears throat> you know, we'll get to look at that. But more pressingly, uh, the question is, does it have any relevance to us? Does it have any value for us today? Well, I say a cautious yes to that. Uh, I think it can have. I think it can, provided we completely dump the idea that it's some kind of blueprint for the end of the world. Revelation actually isn't at all about the end of the world. It never was, uh, and, and, and it definitely isn't. But I think it can address recurring patterns of power and empire in the world. And it does ultimately offer a hope for what could be the future of this world. 
but uh, we'll get to that. So first of all, let's let's kind of rewind a little bit, if that's okay. If Revelation made sense to its original readers, <laughs> it's been puzzling and intriguing people, obsessing some people actually ever since. And that's probably why it's got something of a patchy history in how much it's been accepted or not within the Christian community. It was one of the last texts to be uh, accepted into the New Testament canon. That's not why it's at the end of the of the the, the Bible, but um, it was one of the final texts because it was disputed hugely as to whether it was worthy of being included in the New Testament. And some churches in the Eastern tradition, you know, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, those traditions, some of them remain sceptical and to this day and never ever read from Revelation publicly in their churches. The Protestant reformers, you know, were also quite ambivalent. It's the only biblical book, actually, for which Calvin, John Calvin, didn't write a commentary. He just didn't, he just didn't do that. Martin Luther uh, only finally saw use for Revelation as a weapon against the Vatican and the Catholic Church, because he, you know, that's what he read into the text. I mean, clearly the great whore of Babylon, you know, is Rome, isn't it? Um, needless to say, Catholics had a different view. They saw it all the other way around, you know. Um, and that really, you know, therein lies something of a tale, doesn't it, of how Christendom has often functioned. It just depends who you like and who you don't like as to how you interpret particular texts. In a way, <coughs> excuse me, Revelation really uh, didn't come into its own until the 19th century, really. Didn't really come into its own until the mid-19th century through uh, someone called John Nelson Darby. Here he is, happy-looking guy. One of the founders, actually, of the Plymouth Brethren uh, that I used to belong to. And uh, John Nelson Darby, J.N. Darby, he's known as, concocted something called dispensationalism, uh, which looks a bit like this. So it's really the idea that history is divided up into seven blocks of time, seven dispensations, which follow uh, linearly and sequentially, beginning with the age of innocence in the Garden of Eden and then progressing through periods, you know, of conscience and promise and law and the other stages that you can see there, culminating in the age of grace, which runs from the cross, where Jesus died, to the rapture, when Christians will be snatched away just before the Great Tribulation, followed by the Second Coming and the 1,000-year reign of Christ called the Millennium, and then God's final judgment, etc., etc., etc. Now, you've, you know, quite possibly never heard of dispensationalism. I certainly wouldn't blame you if you hadn't. But if you've spent any time around evangelicalism, around evangelical churches, I can pretty much guarantee that you've been exposed to or influenced by some aspects of J.N. Darby's ideas and his scheme, even though, as I've said, this is something that's less than 200 years old. And there are things that have now been incorporated in, especially to the evangelical kind of part of the church and, and taken as being given biblical and all the rest of it um, that actually um, were concoctions of 
J.N. Darby and other people around him um, in the mid-19th century. In The Brethren, I grew up with dispensationalism, lucky me, which became uh, doubly potent in my early teens with the Cold War, um, the Iron Curtain, the threat of the bomb. Everyone was talking about the bomb, uh, the nuclear bomb. And, and of course, the Cuba crisis, where it seemed as if there was a very real likelihood that someone was going to actually hit the button. I remember leaflets and pamphlets circulating in uh, my Christian circles with a nuclear mushroom cloud, you know, that iconic sort of cloud on the cover, warning that the end of the world was nigh, that the prophecies of revelation were all coming to pass, were going to be fulfilled, that the rapture uh, was about to happen, so we needed to be ready. Well, I can tell you this wasn't especially good news to a young Scouse boy who loved Liverpool Football Club, the Beatles and girls, and to be honest, I definitely didn't fancy the rapture. You know, the whole thing actually scared the crap out of me. And actually, I had plenty to be excited about right here and now in this world. I didn't want to be kind of snatched away into some other place elsewhere. I wanted to just get on and, and live my precious life down here. But it was scary, you know, it was scary. And I know lots and lots of people, some of you have been writing to me since I said this was what I was going to be talking about, saying about how it scared you. And people have, have related that to me over the years. <clears throat> I've said before, I've said before how, as a young boy, I would sneak into my parents' bedroom in the dead of night to make sure that they were still there. It's very sad, isn't it, for a young boy to make sure the rapture hadn't happened and I'd been left behind. Um, I mean, preachers have had a field day with that kind of fear factor, scaring their crap out of people, scaring them into compliance, you know, into accepting Jesus before it's too late, um, all of that kind of stuff. So let me repeat, in the scheme of things, the rapture, which I call the sneak snatch theory, <laughs> say more as we go along, occurs seven years <coughs> in in the John Nelson Darby scheme of things. It occurs seven years before the second coming. It's when faithful Christians will be snatched away, taken away to meet Christ in the air and whisked off to heaven. And um, then follows seven years of great tribulation. And there's, I remember, you know, my poor little mind trying to get... Uh, you know, a, a handle on all this stuff, you know, because people would talk about the fact that, you know, a pilot in an aircraft who was a Christian would suddenly be whisked away and the plane would crash, you know. Um, I mean, you can just imagine all kinds of disasters. And I have to tell you this, which saddens my heart so much. I grew up with uh, a little dog called Susie, precious little part of my life back then. And my dad, uh, who was housebound, really, because he was disabled, loved little Susie but he was also a passionate believer in uh, the sort of schema of things that J.N. Darby came up with and I can remember one day he was crying uh, as he was stroking Susie and my mum said what's wrong Fred you know what what why are you crying and 
he said, I'm wondering what is going to happen to Susie when the Lord comes. And so, you know, that's, a, that's the kind of hideously ridiculous but devastatingly sad kind of thinking that enters in and I know has been a part of an awful lot of people's lives. In the United States, um, <coughs> a succession of books called the Left Behind series, plus films that were made based on them, have become a massive religious industry, raking in millions. Um, and basically, in fictional form, uh, though mostly they aren't read as fiction, these books are about what happens to those who are left behind, you know, including probably, I don't think Susie was mentioned, but, but what happens to all these people who are left behind after the rapture? Um, because in the seven years before the final judgment, people still have opportunity to repent uh, and to become part of the tribulation force, as the book describes them, the battles with real weapons, um, the forces of the Antichrist, who, guess what, is the head of the United Nations in, uh, in the books. As the armies engage in unspeakable violence at the Battle of Armageddon, Jesus returns to earth and conquers the forces of the Antichrist in a horrendous bloodbath. And uh, that's, that's how it goes. And, you know, I mean, it makes for amazing fiction for people who like that sort of thing, which I don't. Actually, uh, these kinds of books have got a history. Uh, this wasn't the first attempt at doing this. I remember similar but much less dramatic versions of the Left Behind books as a child. And maybe you will remember Hal Lindsay's The Late Great Planet Earth, which came out in the, in the 1970s, which was exactly the same thing, uh, you know, a popularised version of, you know, what, what happens to those who are left behind and all that kind of thing. And in the 1980s, both Hal Lindsey and uh, the fundamentalist Christian Ronald Reagan believed together that biblical events would be triggered by nuclear war. And scarily, of course, one of them actually had his hand potentially on the button. Eschatology, study of the end times, is, you have to say, an, an integral part of Christian history. All credible New Testament scholarship recognises that the, the whole backdrop of many of the New Testament texts is eschatological, you know, that Paul and the other apostles believed that they were in the end times. They expected Jesus to return very soon, to instigate the messianic fulfillment of the kingdom of God. You know, Paul's earliest letter, the um, first letter to be written actually in the New Testament is 1 Thessalonians. And this letter addresses the issue directly. Uh, and in fact, that letter is foundational to what you might call rapture theology. Let me explain. In Paul's absence uh, from the, the church at Thessalonica, Thessalonica, there have been deaths in the church, which, <coughs> you know, considering they thought the second coming was about to happen, raised the question, well, what happens to them? You know, what will happen to those, our loved ones, who die before Christ comes? And Paul basically says that when the second coming happens, the dead in Christ and the living will all be reunited and be with God forever. In short, he's saying, 
don't worry. I mean, it's a pastoral response, and whether he meant any of the details uh, that he wrote about to be taken literally, well, we, we can't possibly know. It's certainly the case, though, that Paul did expect Christ's return soon within his lifetime. And we have to say that in that belief, which comes out in a number of his letters in the New Testament, he was wrong. It didn't happen. It still hasn't happened. Which raises an important hermeneutical question, I think. Are we to understand New Testament texts as coming from God in such a direct way that they have a, a divine guarantee to be true, or do they tell us what significant figures and communities in early Christianity said and believed within the limitations of their time and place? The assumption behind the first option is that the text is inerrant. It's there are no errors in the Bible and it can't be wrong. The second option affirms the text as the product of our spiritual ancestors, if you like, revealing what they thought and believed, which may still be important to us, but requires us to use our God-given critical skills and intuitions to integrate that heritage with our world now, with insights from the present, as we attempt to work out what following Christ faithfully means in our own day. But let me stress that rapture theology uh, isn't necessarily the same as believing that Christ will come again. They are actually two separate things. I mean, you know, people have believed through history that Christ will come again, but they haven't all believed the rapture theology that essentially came out of, of J.N. Darby and, and other people of his ilk at the time. Um, so you, you can, you know, believe in a second coming without believing in this sneak-snatch rapture thing, um, which will raise many questions of what it does mean then, because for many of us, the two things have been so completely wrapped up together. Um, there have been many periods of history when Christians, as I say, have believed in the second coming and believed that it's at hand. Um, I mean, particularly at critical times like the turn of the first millennium, you know, or the time of the Reformation. Uh, and, you know, then more recently, there have been all kinds of uh, catastrophic or threatening catastrophes in our world that have, that have brought it all back to, to the fore. Um, but, but none of these historically included rapture theory until J.N. Darby came along. And yet now, as I say, most people most evangelical Christians who buy into the one conflate it with the other. So we will look a little more at Revelation in terms of how it might speak to us today. But all I, I wish to do today um, is give another hermeneutical steer. Okay, Eschatology is a field packed with finely nuanced theories about which event will follow that. You know, there are premillennialists and postmillennialists and amillennialists, to name just a few. They're, they're all theories, you know, which is fine if they are taken and pervade as theories rather than as facts, as biblical facts. <clears throat> Interestingly, eschatology, theories about the end of the world, are flourishing way beyond the boundaries of the church nowadays. I remember talking to Jonathan Porritt, who was then the director of 
Friends of the Earth back in the mid-1980s about the eschatological challenges that I faced trying, as I was at the time, to introduce environmental stewardship, this is 1985, to evangelical Christians. Because at that time, what I was constantly being told back by people is, why should we worry about the world, about the environment, because it's all going to burn. That's what the Bible says. You know, God's judgment is upon it and it's all going to burn. So so why would we bother? It's more important to go out there and convert people to Christianity and that sort of thing. So that's an eschatological problem because it's how you view the end of things, you know. Jonathan Porritt understood what I was talking about <coughs> and he said that the environment movement was actually awash with its own eschatologies, how the future is going to pan out in light of, you know, environmental and more recently climate breakdown. And, um, uh, you know, all of which is, I think, pretty damned relevant right now. And it's no coincidence that the language of apocalypse is flourishing today in all kinds of non-religious circles. Um, some feared and spoke in apocalyptic language about the pandemic. Uh, some think that while we got, uh, you know, we, we got more or less the better of this one, others will follow uh, that will be perhaps a lot less beatable. And so there are those people who think one of these pandemics is going to get us. Well, even thinking that is kind of eschatological. Um, it's apocalyptic. Me personally... I lean towards a form of what's sometimes termed realised eschatology. And yes, that is a thing. Uh, it was popularised by people like John Robinson, the 1960s Bishop of Woolwich and a progressive Christian scholar, by people like Joachim Jeremias, uh, a respected German New Testament scholar, and C.H. Dodd, uh, who's a much-loved New Testament commentator, who probably actually introduced the phrase realized eschatology. Realized eschatology basically sees the promise of the kingdom of God in the Bible as a present reality in the world now. Not a future state of things, you know, uh, beyond planetary history as it were, but that the kingdom of God was embodied by Jesus and is constantly breaking into history, constantly finding realization uh, eschatology therefore is not the end of the world but it's rebirth um, a cycle of of rebirth finding expression in jesus uh, which is very important for christians and the early church but recurring actually through history in various forms so some you know form of realized eschatology is attractive instinctively if not consciously by progressively minded or liberal Christians, uh, I guess like us, certainly like me, who prefer to emphasise the love and goodness of God and the passionate pursuit of this in the here and now, uh, rather than sort of concentrating on some, you know, out of world judgment or whatever. Realised eschatology is an eschatology engaged in the process of becoming rather than waiting for some cataclysmic divine intervention to swoop in and make everything different. 
So yeah, re realized eschatology is, is more in tune, I think, with an evolutionary outlook. In fact, it, it kind of links very well to, um, I think, a, a scientific notion of evolution um, applied not just in the physics and the physical sciences, but in social sciences too. Well, all of this love and goodness is fine, but what about a Vladimir Putin, you know? What about a pandemic, an apocalyptic, unstoppable shift in Earth's climate that we won't be able to pull back from, you know? These are important questions, and maybe we can unpack some of these as we move forward. But let me leave you with this, this thought. Theories about the future, whether religious or not, are just that, theories, you know? You can call them prophecy, you can call them revelation, you can call them our best scientific guess or hunch, you know, whatever you want to call them. Um, you know, let's, by all means, discuss these things. Let's argue, let's speculate, because you know what? Best guesses may help us shape the future. I think that getting coming to terms with what climate change suggests eschatologically um, is a very significant thing and I was asked recently whether I would consider writing something uh, about um, a theology that encompasses or includes the thought of the extinction of the human race. That's a very interesting thing isn't it and I, I don't think any Christian eschatology I've come across would, would even remotely think of that because we're all going to be sneak snatched away to heaven and all will be well but on a more down-to-earth level um, you know it is a possibility if we don't do something about this freaking state of affairs um, I, I think the world will go on but I don't know whether human beings will and so that's a very interesting thought isn't it, it got me thinking I haven't written it or got down to even committing to but the thought that, um, you know, what would a theology look like that encompassed the prospect of, you know, the extinction of human beings? It's, it's, it's kind of, and, and I think it's important to think about these things because, <clears throat> you know, in the end, I believe the best theologies are the ones that help us to live better. The ones that help us to live kinder, more compassionate, more courageous lives right now. Not sort of, you know, focus all our attention on heaven and rapture theology and all that kind of crap, if you don't mind me saying. But things that bring us right down here. And that's why I like the idea of something that is a realised, recurring eschatology. <coughs> and um, I think theology is basically just hot air if it doesn't enable us to help repair the world, as our Jewish friends like to put it. So let me quote with a uh, let me sorry let me finish with a quote from uh, a social commentator called Stephen Toulmin, whose work I've read in the past and liked very much. And he wrote this in the mid 1990s, looking toward the new millennium. He said this: "Thinking about the future, we have a choice between two attitudes toward the future. It's a choice between imagination and nostalgia, between facing the future." and backing into it. It's a very powerful statement that bears uh, a lot of reflection because <coughs> I think that um, 
there are retrospective, conservative, political instincts alive in our world that are based on nostalgia, that want to back into the future, focusing their attention on hanging on to stuff from the past. Um, that's definitely an instinct and an awful lot of religion. But I think what Tuman's pointing us toward is a choice of courage, of imagination, of facing the future, because only when we face it are we going to have any chance at all of shaping it. So join me next time to pursue this further, especially zeroing in on the actual book of Revelation, uh, but, but thinking about the application of these things in our world. So here's a prayer. Great energy of the universe, who we call God, the one who fired up the Big Bang 14 billion years ago, who fuels the curious adventure of cosmic and biological evolution, whose wisdom cradles star systems into existence and extinction. We cannot possibly fathom the mystery of our own infinitesimal lives, let alone the future of the universe. But we pray for divine wisdom in the way that we live our days, in our relationship to the teeming millions of species and creatures who are our Earth family, in what we are blessed to be able to contribute toward the future of this precious planet, our home. May we know that each flap of our butterfly wings changes history in some way, for someone, somewhere. May we know that what we do to Earth and its creatures, we do to you. May we know our place in the circle. May we know that we belong. Amen. I think this is one of the big things, you know, guys, that uh, a lot of the theology I grew up on was a theology of exile of not fitting in this world is not my home um, and so don't settle down here and I think that what we desperately need is a theology of belonging a theology that affirms the divine within the matter and material of the universe but which um, underlines our sense of belonging to, to this world uh, because I think the only hope we have of doing anything about climate change doesn't come from just tinkering around a little bit on the surface. I think there's need for a whole consciousness shift to recover that sense of belonging that our ancient ancestors had, but um, we've lost along the way. Anyway, let's have a toast. <clears throat> so if you've got something to drink, then I invite you... So pour it now and join with me. <coughs> I think that, uh, you know, we should, I think we should toast buttercups, don't you? <laughs> Buttercup people. Uh, toast those people whose feet are on the ground. Toast a form of faith and spirituality that is grounded which is bringing our energy back here into ourselves, into our bodies, into our world to be part 
of uh, God's repair program for this world here. Um, I think that, you know, rapture theology and all that stuff we've been talking about, uh, to me, is a theology of, a, of a, another world, another place, um, not this life here. I think we need to toast a theology, a spirituality of living to the full here and now. To life, Lahaim. And there we are. So, um, you know, if you like what I'm doing here, if you like the Holy Shed, then you can support us if you'd like. Not least by buying us a coffee or a whiskey. By going to the coffee site, which is the links on your screen now, and it's always at the top of the posts on the Facebook page. And, um, yeah, thank you very much uh, for all those people who do that and who encourage us in a whole lot of other ways too so uh excuse me <coughs> uh <laughs> it's not good for the screen is it um this morning i was at st leonard's i am in london now we're at st leonard's church in stratton this morning where i gave the sermon on john 5 the story where uh the man is lying by the pool that the, the kind of tradition was that an angel came and stirred it now and again and if you're first to jump in you got healed um it's a very interesting story and um yeah if you want to listen to it there will be a link put up before too long also this week i'm doing a stand-in on pause for thought on thursday which has now swapped from being 9 20 as it was on zoe ball show it's now switched to 7 15 which catches a whole different audience and hopefully we'll give a little bit more chance to you know interact about it so this thursday 7 15 if you're alive and well you could join me so let's finish with a blessing the blessing of god the eternal goodwill of god the shalom and salam of god the wildness and warmth of god be among us and between us now and always amen so I'm gonna <coughs> I'm gonna finish I'm gonna finish with uh, a song by the lovely Carrie Newcomer, which I, I just I know I've played her lots of times, but this is a song I haven't played before, and it just seems so lovely and helpful to what we've been thinking about. Because at the end of the day, I think the few regarding the future, there's a level at which we need to just be agnostic and say we don't know. But what we do know is we're alive now and we can do something to affect our world. And so this song is called Learning to Live with Not Knowing. And I think that's something that is a discipline we all have to face up to and learn in life. So thanks for being with me. Uh, go well. Have a great week. Be kind to people. Be kind to yourself. Stay human. And I'll see you very soon. Bye.
Learning to sit with not knowing. 